Luke chapter 6. Uh, we're going to start from verse 12 today. We're not going to cover a lot of ground. Um, naively start these things, working through a gospel, and think, well, maybe we'll get through it in a year, maybe two years. But um, we're, Jesus is just so incredible that you can't rush this stuff. This is gold. Um, this is a, a wee weird thing happens to me in school every Friday around about ten past one. A bunch of kids come into my into my classroom to do an alpha course. There's about I don't know how many. There's about at least six, maybe eight or nine alpha courses running at the minute in Portadown College. And just saying that is class. Um, so pray for them. But whenever they they come in and uh, and we we're, we're doing alpha youth using the videos, which are absolutely magnificent quality videos that that are made available. And then they have these discussion times. But at the start, just as I sort of very briefly introduce each week. As soon as I say Jesus, I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> I love him. You know, I love him. And uh, one of the things in, in Alpha Youth this week, they were on episode two. And uh, they have these questions. So about every six or seven minutes, you pause the video. And the question this week was, what would you like to be famous for? With a room full of teenagers, you do get a few random things coming back at you. Um, they didn't ask me, but as, as, I, as they were discussing it themselves, I was thinking, what would I answer if they asked me what would I like to be famous for? And I genuinely thought, without any holiness or self-righteousness at all, I thought I'd love to be famous for helping people know Jesus, for helping them understand him better, get to know him, walk with him, follow him, learn about him. That's what I would love to be famous for. I just love Jesus. So going through Luke's gospel is a, is a dream, um, and the title for today's message, talking about a revolution. Um, kids, I can guarantee you today what song mommy will be playing over and over again in the kitchen. Uh, it'll be by this lady here. Anybody recognize this lady? This is a blast from the past. Do you remember this? One of the first things that, that Linda introduced me to when we started going out. Uh, I, I don't know, quite a while ago, um, was, was, a, was Tracy Chapman. And particularly one album by Tracy Chapman, which was called Tracy Chapman. And the album, the, the, the song that you might know from, there's a song called Fast Car that's been covered loads of times by loads of people, most notably Passenger, who did a massively good job with it. I'm getting excited about music as well, you see. Um, but the first song on this album was called Talking About a Revolution. And it's been in my mind this last few days as I've been mulling over this passage. I've been listening to this song this morning just on loop, on repeat, talking about a revolution because that's what's going on in this passage in Luke. And the song says, don't you know, they're talking about a revolution. It sounds like a whisper. And what's going on in this passage in Luke when Jesus goes into the hills with his disciples it's like a whisper. It's like something insignificant. It's like something that's not going to change anything. But it's the seeds of a revolution that's taking place in what he does. Previously on Luke, we've had the outcasts are in. We've looked in chapters 4 and 5 at how the fringe people, the marginalized people, the ones that everybody else rejected, are being welcomed by Jesus and transformed by Jesus. We have seen one of the most important passages, I think, in Luke so far, maybe in, in the entire first nine chapters of Luke, which is where there's a sort of a break. 
is that, that Jesus says there's got to be new wineskins for the new wine of the kingdom. And one of the things that's been weaving in and out, uh, hasn't even been weaving in and out, it's been a constant presence for about the past four or five sermons and won't get much time today, thankfully, is the opposition that has arisen. Always in the background, these, the Pharisees trying to pick holes in what he's doing, trying to shut it down, and then eventually at the end of last week, they begin to discuss how they're going to get rid of Jesus. And then we get to verse 12. Let me just read verses 12 to 16. Again, as you read the gospel, it just seems on first glance that it's just another one of those little facts recorded. It's another, you know, just Jesus did this and move on type thing. But no, don't move on. Let's, let's just linger here. We're in no rush. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, don't worry, we're not doing 12 character studies today uh, or any day uh, soon, to be honest. That's a, that's a huge study in itself and a lovely study, but we're not going to try to do that here. Jesus goes up to a mountainside to pray. Luke tells us more about Jesus' prayer life than the other gospel writers. He loves to just drop in at Jesus' baptism. Luke is the one that tells us that Jesus was praying whenever the Spirit came. At the transfiguration, Luke is the one who tells us that the transfiguration took place as Jesus prayed. He loves to emphasize prayer. And uh, on this occasion, we're in the previous verse. The religious leaders and the Herodians are getting together and they're trying to figure out how are we going to get rid of this guy. Jesus' response is he goes up to a mountainside to pray. Default response when challenge comes, when opposition comes, when everything seems to be starting to fall apart, pray. Up to a mountain to pray. And mountains are places of revelation and places of the presence of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of prophets and leaders going up the mountains to meet with God. Most famously, Moses. God said to him, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And it would would then become somewhere that God would reveal the commandments and the law to Moses. Now, he prayed all night. Have you ever prayed all night? He prayed all night. All night long. I've done it once. (laughs) So don't be starting to get freaked out. I've done it once. On another occasion, I did a four-hour shift in a prayer room during the night for a 48-hour uh, prayer session that was that was arranged by 24-7 Prayer Ireland. I spent four hours praying in a little upstairs room at the Methodist Church up the street. I initially went in at midnight a bit freaked out <laughs> because churches, you know, sort of old traditional church buildings are slightly weird places to be at that time of night on your own. So I went in there thinking, this is a bit weird. 
uh, and thinking, how am I going to actually pass four hours here? Um, and it was blessed. It was class. I could have, you know, the next person came in after me at four o'clock and I, and I remember thinking, I'm really glad to see you, but you know, I'm having a blast here and I sort of wish I was staying for longer. And then there was one other occasion when I did, I did pray all night. Have you ever made a decision or been on the cusp of making a decision and it has been really, really important? Have you ever made a decision and six months later regretted it and the thought that came to mind was, I wish I'd prayed more about that. Have, I have been in that place where I've made decisions based on common sense, seeking a bit of advice from others, trying to figure everything out in my own head, but not laboring over it enough in prayer and then living to regret that. The fact that Jesus here, and this is the only occasion we read of him praying all night long, the fact that he is doing this on this occasion shows that what he is about to do the next day is absolutely huge. He prayed all night. This is not something you can do on a regular basis, but I would sometime, if it works with your schedule, the one time I did it, it was half term. I was off school the next day. I had recovery time. And, and you know, I wouldn't recommend that you come in here tonight and then try to go to work tomorrow morning. It might, it might not end well. But I've had powerful times seeking God during the night. And the, the early church followed Jesus' example. They would not take big decisions without prayer. In Acts 14, we read of Paul and Barnabas appointing elders in each church with prayer and fasting. They did not do things lightly. Big decisions were soaked in prayer before they were made. On that occasion that I did pray here all night, you know, most of you are probably well aware of it, but it was in order to select elders who would shepherd the church. It's the only time in the journey of this church that I've prayed all night and I felt it was that important that I had, and it was inspired by this verse in Luke 6, that I had to bring it before God. I had to do what Jesus did because it was such an important and precious decision. Whenever you're facing a big decision, you don't have to do the night shift. You don't have to pray all night long. But I I would urge you, hit the pause button and just say, I'll decide in 24 hours (laughs) if the option's there. I'll come back to you with my answer in 24 hours. And you may, in that 24 hours, save yourself months and months of pain further down the line. So he prayed all night. And then he called his disciples the next morning, and he chose 12 of them. Now, if I went out about the town this afternoon and picked 11 men, how many men? Good. 11 men. I went out and I picked 11 men, and I said, guys, I need you 11 men Next Saturday at three o'clock. Any ideas what I'm what I'm doing if I if I do that? Samuel, would you have any idea why I would need eleven men on Saturday at three o'clock? Not to build a shed. No, no, there are other things. <laughs> oh come on, what do we need eleven men for? Football match. Okay, if I went and picked eleven men, you you most of you that have any interest in sport would be thinking, right? He's picking a football team. Because that's 11 men. Sorry if that's sexist. I don't mean to be. But he picked pick 11 men and it's like for 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, good chance that we're arranging a football match. 
Because people know that that's, that's what it means. And whenever Jesus went and picked 12, what he was doing was stunning, radical, revolutionary, and everybody got it. And for some reason, I didn't get it for years as a Christian because nobody told me. When Jesus picked 12, what, what he was doing and what everybody knew was that there are 12 tribes in Israel. And for anyone to pick 12 guys and start a new movement with 12 guys around him, it was very clear what he was doing. It was very provocative. It was very upsetting to the authorities. He was reconstituting Israel around himself. Now, this might be new for some of you, and I would challenge you to really, really wrestle with this. Because I think if we misunderstand Israel, and we get caught up in sensationalist teaching, mainly coming out of America, about Israel and about the end times and all sorts of stuff, we can miss Jesus big time, what he's doing. When he picks the 12, the nation has been in exile for centuries. The 70-year exile in Babylon is over, but spiritually speaking, the people are still in exile. We've talked about this now for weeks. And the tribes after the exile got lost. Ten of them literally just got lost, scattered so far that they never reconstituted. And Jesus now is standing and he's calling 12 men around himself. He is calling the people of God out of exile to form a new nation around him. He is Israel. All right? Just get it. And read your Bible and read about Jesus and you can't miss it. Jesus is Israel. He is the son of God who would perfectly show the world what God is like. And just like Jacob, Israel had 12 sons. Jesus now has 12 men around him and he's redefining what it means to be the people of God. It is a revolutionary act. Revolutionary. And the church, I think, misses it. And we wrap it on about Israel and about how, you know, God is using Israel and he's working through Israel as in that little nation in the Middle East. He's not. <laughs> he's working through his church. Israel rejected Jesus. The nation, the ethnic people, not all of them, but most of them rejected Jesus. And Jesus has redefined. There is now an Israel of God, as Paul puts it in Galatians. There is a new Israel of God and there are Jews in it and there are Gentiles in it. And men and women and slave and free and old and young and rich and poor. There's a new people of God and it is defined not by bloodline or by where you were born or by tracing your ancestry back to Abraham. It is defined by whether or not you follow Jesus. That's it. That is the line, the marker. And when Jesus picks 12, he screams it for all time. I'm redefining what it means to be Israel and to be the people of God. And yet for years when I was a, a young Christian, I read these books about the end times and tribulations and, and, and seven year period. And the church would disappear and then God would start working with Israel again. And the temple would be rebuilt. It's bunkum. It's absolute balderdash. We are the temple. <laughs> When Ezekiel writes about a temple in Ezekiel 47, we are that temple. Paul tells us that repeatedly. We are the presence of God to the world. Don't be looking for a new building to be put up someday in Jerusalem. It won't happen. 
God has his last day's temple and the church is the temple. The church is the place of God's presence, the people. And Jesus has got this new wine of the kingdom that won't go into the old ways of doing things. That's why there's all these clashes with the religious guys, the Pharisees. He can't put his kingdom into them. They are old wineskins, brittle. They will explode if the kingdom goes into them. He needs new wineskins. And that's what these disciples are going to be. I missed it for years. I honestly did. I remember, you know, just as I started maybe 10 years ago to, to read into this more and just listen to, to some really, really good teachers and, and think, how have I been in church for years and heard sermons for years and never been told this? Not that the responsibility lies with anyone other than me for knowing these things, but I just marveled at it. And I got so excited about it. And you can see it everywhere in Jesus. And I, I tell you this at least once a year. But just look at, look at his birth. Look at him going into Egypt like Israel went into Egypt. Look at him coming through the waters of baptism like Israel went through the Red Sea. Look at him going into the wilderness for 40 days like Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. You can't miss it. It's everywhere. He is now the heart and the center of what it means to be the people of God. God has only one people on this planet and it is those who follow Jesus no matter what nation they are from. And look where all of this is happening. We, if, you, if you back up to, to just the previous verse, he's in a mountainside to pray. Now, back in those days, you did not go out to the hills for a walk to get your head chart. The hills were dangerous places. The hills around, around Galilee and around the, the towns and the villages were dangerous places to go. If you had a day off work and you wanted to do some forest bathing, do you remember the Japanese word from for, for forest bathing from a couple of weeks ago? No, you don't. Oh, look. Hmm. Teacher's pet. Um, literally. A... You didn't go into the hills and into the forests around the villages for, for a walk, for dander, for a bit of quiet reflection time on your own. Because what you found in the hillsides, and get this again, what you found in the hillsides was revolutionaries pulling groups of people around them to start a revolution against Rome. That's what you found. People who wanted to start a movement to, to stand up and to fight back against the Roman Empire and Roman oppression. These freedom fighters, effectively first century paramilitaries, what they would do is they would not meet in, in rooms in the city or in the town. They would go out to the hillsides. And in the hillsides and the forests, they would start to put together a band of revolutionaries who are going to change the world. And it was happening all the time. And when Jesus goes out into the hillsides and he calls 12 men around him, he is making a huge statement of what he is about to do. We're talking about a revolution. We're not talking about him needing a little bit of help. Okay? It's not as if the crowds were getting a bit bigger and he said, hmm, I'm finding it tough and I need a few lads to help me out. Here's 12 fellas. I'll delegate a few jobs to them. No, 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 no. It's much bigger than that. It's a revolution. He's going to turn the world upside down. And that's why he goes into the hills and picks 12 men. And he designated them as apostles. Now, you know these guys. Where are they? There they are there. You know them. Have you watched The Chosen yet? 
Yes, God bless you. If you haven't watched it, you are bad, because I told you months ago to watch it. You need to watch it. Eight episodes, all for free, but if you don't make a donation, you're a bit sad. It is wonderful stuff. Portrays the disciples fantastically, biblically well. It's brilliant. It's on YouTube. I think the whole thing there is for free, but seriously, give them a tenner because they need to make season two and we need to pay for it. Um, But look at these guys. Were they apostles when Jesus got a hold of them? They were not. They were fishermen. And they were tax collectors. And they were freedom fighters. And we'll look a wee bit more at what they were in, in a minute or two. But the point is... Jesus designated them as apostles. He called that out in them and named them that. And then he began the process of investing in them so that they would become what he had called them to be. That's leadership. All right? That is leadership. He called it out. He saw something in them and he called it out of them. But it was not, it was not who they were whenever he met them. Definitely not. Peter was no apostle. James and John, definitely not apostles. But he had this aspiration for them. And instead of just saying, you know what, if you weren't this or if you weren't that, we could maybe do something. He saw the gold. And I've told you this before again and again. As well. He had saw the gold. Too many of us, we look at people and we see the dirt instead of digging in and finding the gold and calling it out of people and seeing it developed. And Jesus had aspirations for these guys, so he named them what they were not. He said, you are apostles. You're going to be apostles. And Luke loves this word. He uses it about six times in the gospel and then about 28 times in Acts. It's like Jesus called them apostles. I'm going to call them apostles too. And they were a motley crew, if ever there was one. These are not the people that common sense would have chose. Me, before praying all night, I would not have chose these guys. I would have gone and chose Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is really smart. And Nicodemus is really influential. And Nicodemus has a really strong background in the law. And Nicodemus could pull some strings and make some, some things happen. And if Nicodemus was on board, we'd have a wee bit of clout, maybe with the local authorities. I'd pick Nicodemus. I'd maybe pick Joseph of Arimathea because he's rich. Yeah? And if we're going to get this kingdom movement going, we need Joseph of Arimathea and a few, a few bags of cash, a few shekels from him to get things moving. Jesus did not pick people like that. Jesus picked perfectly ordinary people like me and like you. Perfectly ordinary. He picked Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Fishermen. In fact, he, liked, he gave them nicknames. I just sometimes think there was a wee, a wee bit of, heaven forbid, a wee bit of humor about Jesus sometimes. I think we have this idea that Jesus never laughed, never joked, never smiled. He gave the guys nicknames, okay? He basically called Peter Rocky. And he called James and John, James son of Zebedee, this is Mark's account, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Now, there was a reason that he called them that. Hopefully it wasn't flatulence. Hopefully it wasn't that they were into meteorological observations and liked a good thunderstorm. He called them sons of thunder because they were hot-headed. They had bad tempers. 
They would fight with each other and with other people. And Jesus, in mischief, I think, gave them this nickname. But they were in the team. Two guys who lost the rag on quite a regular basis, so much so that Jesus called them that, and they're in. Who else is in? Matthew's in. Tax collector. Working for the Romans. He's a Jew. And he's working for the enemy and ripping off his own people. And who else is in with them? Simon the Zealot. You read this as Simon the IRA member. Or Simon the UVF member or whatever you want. But he was a first century paramilitary. A freedom fighter who took up arms against Rome. Who would have been out on the hillsides plotting to, to go and murder a couple of Roman centurions or Roman generals who were on patrol in the local town. That's Simon the Zealot. Now you take Matthew the tax collector, Jewish guy working for Rome, and you take Simon the Zealot, Jewish guy, hates Rome and has probably been involved in the death of some Roman soldiers. And Jesus gets both of them and puts them in the same bag and says, you're going to get along now. (laughs) You're both on my team. You're both on my team. You see, reconciliation is what Jesus does. And he can take people who previously are viciously opposed. And one of the signs of the work of the Holy Spirit among a group of people is that they can now walk together. These are everyday people. What a contrast to the leadership choices that we make where money and status and power bring a person to the leadership table. One of the questions that I've asked a few times over the last month is, is there no one in the United States of America maybe in their 40s or 50s or 60s even, who is dynamic, who is leadership gold, who has got principles and ethics, who, who, who could lead a nation and unite a nation. Is there nobody? And I finally got an answer just from somebody a week or two ago. He basically said, there are, but they don't have the money. <laughs> it's only the people that have the money that can make it to the White House because it costs so much to get there. Money and status by influence and leadership, not in the church. Jesus picks ordinary people. And on a darker note, we read of Judas Iscariot. I don't know if you've ever busted yourself trying to get your head around that one. (laughs) Was he right to choose him? Was he wrong to choose him? Did he know when he chose him? Did he not know? How, how, much, how seriously do we take the incarnation? He chose Judas. One of the key words, I think, in that verse is actually the word became. Judas became a traitor. Was Judas a traitor on day one? Luke says Judas became a traitor. Maybe Judas was a reasonable enough spud but got well-led somewhere along the journey. We don't really know. We can, we can speculate and we can guess, but all we know is he became a traitor. And I'm speculating that possibly, right back at the start, that might not have been in him. You see, sometimes you can pray all night and you can make your choices, but you're not responsible for what Judas goes on to do. So it's not, for me, it's not an issue of, of was Jesus right or wrong. Obviously, he's not wrong. He was never wrong. But it's not an issue of did he know or did he not know. The issue is Judas is responsible for his own heart. 
It's not so much, Jesus, did you get this wrong? What were you doing? It's like, no, Judas, you're responsible for your own heart. Judas became a traitor. He became a traitor. Later on, John would write that Judas is a devil in John chapter 6 at the end. But for the first while, we don't know much about Judas. We don't know, was he on board? Was he not on board? But we can just see as things go along, you can see he's not happy with the direction it's going. He's not happy in John chapter 6 that they want to make Jesus a king. And that, that, that he doesn't accept that. He's not happy whenever somebody pours expensive perfume over Jesus' feet in a lavish act of worship. That offends Judas. Lavish worship offends Judas. When people are are just praising and, and pouring out their love and their devotion to Jesus, Judas gets annoyed. Was he like that from day one? We don't know. But Jesus still calls people by name. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, a lovely verse of reassurance For anyone who doubts, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. He still calls people by name. He still calls people what they are not yet. I wonder what he would whisper into your heart, what he would designate you as that you would maybe respond and say, No, I'm just a fisherman, just a tax collector. I'm just a a person with temper, anger issues. Jesus calls the name and he says, no, 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 you are blank. (laughs) And this is what you will become as you follow me. He still calls people by name. And and these are the new wineskins. This passage at the end of Luke chapter 5 is so important. These guys, as opposed to the the religious leaders that we've seen bouncing along in the background, these are the new wineskins. These 12 men. And, And by the way, ladies, don't get offended by that. It had to be 12 men, not because ladies can't lead, they can. And not because ladies can't do ministry, they can. It had to be 12 men because it had to reflect the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why it had to be 12 men. And in fact, I haven't got it in my notes here, but at one stage, Paul refers to them as the 12 after Judas' death. That's how much it was, it was not about the number as it was about Israel. After Judas' death, I think it's about 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus was seen by the 12. He wasn't seen by 12 men. Because Judas was dead. But yet Paul still refers to his followers as the twelve because his followers are Israel, no matter what the number is. These are the new wineskins. We have seen the opposition. We've seen the old wineskins who can't handle what Jesus did. And now we see the new wineskins that emerge. And Jesus now, just to read, I'm not going any further in terms of the actual, the next part of the passage, but I want you to see what he does. So have a look. I don't have it on the screen. If you've got a Bible, have a look at, um, at, at Luke chapter 6. What he does after he picks these guys. It says in verse 17, he went down with them and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Jesus now is the center of everything. The people are gathering around him. They're not going to the temple. Temple's done. They're not going to the tabernacle. It's long gone. Jesus is the new. Where is God moving? Is he moving in the temple? No, he's not. He's moving wherever Jesus is. And if Jesus is in Capernaum, he's moving in Capernaum. And if Jesus is in Galilee, he's moving in Galilee. And if he's in Jerusalem, he's moving in Jerusalem. Jesus is now the center. He is the mobile temple, the presence of God. And what he starts to teach them then is words of revolution. Let me just quickly read what he he says to them. We'll dig into these in the new year. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and and reject you or reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. He basically says, I'm turning everything on its head. Revolution is taking place. This is the way life is now going to be. Verse 24, woe to you that are rich. Woe to you that are well fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. He's going to turn everything upside down. It's a revolution. It's not just Jesus with his wee band of helpers. It is a new people of God that he is forming for his kingdom to go in. He's at the center of everything. Just as I close, another verse that has been in my mind. One of those we verses dotted about the Old Testament that, that over the years have got a hold of me. And this is one of them in Haggai. I'm not asking you to find it or we'll be here all day. It's one of those boys that hides at the end of the Old Testament. Go up into the mountains, he says, and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Haggai is told, get up to the mountains And when you go up there, you will get the resources that you need to build my house. Jesus goes up the mountain and prays. He then calls the twelve around him. And they now become the place where God's presence dwells. He gets the resources that he needs to have a dwelling place for God. And that now, in in the last 2,000 years, has multiplied from the twelve to, according to Alpha video on Friday, 2.4 billion who are the dwelling place of God. Temples all over the earth carrying his presence no matter where they are. One of the things that Mark adds in his gospel as he explains the, the choosing of the 12 is he says he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Love that. First priority, be with Before you go preaching, before you go casting out demons, before you go and heal the sick, be with me. I'm appointing you to be with me. And then a couple of years later in Acts chapter 4, whenever they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men like me and like you and women, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the ticket. That's the ticket. They had been with Jesus. We read further on in Acts that the criticism that was leveled at the disciples was that they were turning the world upside down. That's a lovely phrase, but it's wrong. 
the, the authorities did not realize that what these guys were actually doing was turning the world back the right way up. Yeah? Jesus is not about turning the world upside down. The world is already upside down. He's about turning it the right way up again. That's the revolution that's happening. Back to Tracy and her song. They're talking about a revolution. Poor people going to rise up. Finally, the tables are starting to turn. I don't know what she was singing about. I don't know anything about her character or her personal life. But sometimes in the words of secular singers, you can hear in them a cry that matches what Jesus actually wants. A yearning within people for the kingdom of God, even if they don't realize it. So can you find yourself among the twelve? Do you feel disqualified? Do you feel you're too rough? You're too coarse? Temper's a bit, a bit rough? You're not, you're not educated? You're not trained? And therefore you'll watch somebody else carry out the revolution? No, Jesus is calling you. saying, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this world back the right way up again. And I need new wineskins to contain what I'm doing and to bring it to this world. Amen.